Ephesians, a parallel passage to what we've been reading about in Romans 6 lately. And uh, this is actually today going to pick up from a sermon I didn't get to uh, back in the beginning of the year. We did a series on um, nothing given, nothing gained. Uh, This is the year of stewardship at Redeemer. Every year we try to have an emphasis of ministry or spiritual discipline together. And this year we're focusing on uh, stewardship. And today I want to return to that uh, after a long break and talk about, of course, money. And uh, yes, that's right. Today you're going to hear the sermon on the amount. So uh, that's that's going to happen today. And uh, I wasn't able to do it back then. My father passed away, as many of you know, and that that's what kept me from doing it then. So we're catching up today. And to that end, let's catch up with the Lord, seeking his face together in prayer as we go to him. So let's go to our prayer hearing God together. Father, you are the God who owns all things. You're the Lord and creator of all good things. And we cannot help but bring offerings, even ourselves, to you. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that, um, that though we were once in bondage to created things, you have now given us life in the Spirit, a new creation, a new opportunity to be to make you our highest joy and to put everything else in its pr- proper place in stewarding our lives. And Lord, we do relish you as the one God who has loved us unlike any God in history, sending his own son to die for enemies. <laughs> There's no God like that. And because of that generosity that you expressed, uh, even an infinite generosity, Lord, we give you thanks for these gifts. Uh, We give you thanks with these gifts and devote these tithes and offerings to you. We even pray, Lord, that you would work through them to advance your kingdom. Lord, hear our prayers of thanks for your generosity to us and even for these gifts to be used for your kingdom. Lord, we praise you for the property that you have provided for us on Wesley Chapel Road. That is a gift from you to us. A great piece of land where we could impact Union County, even the world. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to give us a vision for reaching people with the gospel and even deepening Christians towards greater faithfulness in the Great Commission. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom We pray that you would give us favor with the banks and ultimately we want your smile as we pursue the building process even now. Lord, hear our prayers for that process and our need for wisdom from you. Father, we don't want to be stuck on our own needs or even just this community, we pray you would give us a vision for our neighbors who don't know you. And we pray for those here and even around the world that, Lord, you would bring the next person to Christ using us, your church, even a future uh, facility. Lord, help us to reach people for Christ. Hear our prayers, our silent prayers for lost friends and family.
Lord, we also lift up the mission of Your church in other parts of the world. We pray for the ministry of the Lees and the Alamans in Monterey, Mexico. For S.U. Reyes in Durango, Mexico. For Nathaniel Adewanu and the brothers with New Harvest Missions in Togo, West Africa. Lord, we ask that through our partnership, through the resources they receive, through the labors and the prayers you have heard, you would reproduce churches and worshipers and communities where there is no gospel. Lord, bring more churches, we pray, silently. Now, Lord, we ask that you'd awaken our hearts to hear the word and you would speak through the speaker. You know how much he needs you. We pray and ask that you would awaken all of our hearts to this magnificent truth that comes out of Ephesians. And it would impact us, Lord, to live differently because there's something grand, something bigger than us at stake here. It's your glory. And so lead us there even through this passage And we pray that in Christ alone. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse 17, Paul has been talking to the Ephesians about their privileges in Christ, and the way they are in Christ, and now he's alluding to how they are to live in Christ Starting in verse 17 of our text, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness And holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. So we're going to talk about money today, and there's a reason why. Money does funny things to people. It really does. I've got two contrasting examples today to show you how Money does funny things to us. Coming from a poor background, some NBA stars, that is a National Basketball Association, rise to extraordinary financial heights. And one of those was NBA superstar Allen Iverson. Iverson was a superstar in high school. 
college and pro basketball. He'll probably end up in the Hall of Fame. And in his career in in pro basketball, he earned over $154 million in salary. That doesn't count what he got in endorsements. Yet, when his playing career ended, Allen Iverson doesn't stop living a certain lifestyle. He continued to live beyond his means, and he spent thousands on jewelry, clothing, and nights out. And in the end, he lost it all. $154 million. Even his $4.5 million home was foreclosed. On the other hand, I present to you a custodian at an airport in Florida named Patrick Morgan. Morgan, it is uh, reported, found an iPad at an airport, and that iPad was in a case, and that case was stuffed with $13,000 cash. To the surprise of many, Morgan handed everything over to the authorities with no expectation of a reward. Yet a reward was actually given to Morgan, though he certainly didn't expect it. And you know what he did with the reward when he got it? He gave it to a homeless woman that he knew, as well as some of it to a co-worker who was in need, a custodian who doesn't have the highest standard of living around. You know, money does really funny things to people, and we might even say uh, it, it does very different things to people. And so we had to ask the question today, what is the difference with how some people handle money and others handle money? What is the difference of the impact of money that it has on a guy like an Allen Iverson or a Patrick Morgan Because there's sometimes so very different results that people carry out with their money. And really, the bigger question for us today is, what makes a difference in how money affects us? Well, in the last few weeks, we've been looking at Romans chapter 6 and talking about how Christ has a profound impact on our lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul has gone so far as to say that if we follow Jesus by faith, then we are dead to sin, dead to an old way of life, and have been resurrected, being saved by grace through faith in Christ. And Paul's implication is this, that when we are saved, we are saved to something, a new kind of life. That affects every part of what we do, everything, our work, our relationships, uh, the way we handle uh, people. Yes, even sex. It affects everything. Today in Ephesians 4, which really is a parallel passage to Romans 6, Paul lays out exactly what it looks like to live as if we've died to sin and been resurrected to a new kind of life. Now, I've got to tell you, we can apply this to all kinds of things. But today I'm going to make a special application on money in particular. On the spiritual exercise, in other words, of stewardship. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul is speaking in imperatives. 
For three chapters, the first three chapters of, of Ephesians, Paul talks about what's true about us. Where do we live with God in Christ as we are connected to Him? And here in this, these chapters, four through six, Paul talks about how that connects to life with the imperatives. Do this, don't do that. And, and so in verse 17, he starts picking up that very same language of do this, don't do that. As we see in verse 17, look at this. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are dark in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Here, Paul, of course, is starting off his classic ethic. And here's Paul's ethic. Don't do this, but do that. This is the way he interprets the law of God. Don't do this, but do that. And the command is saying, in this case, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, what does that mean? Well, when he says walk, that is the basic metaphor in all of Scripture for daily living. What you do in your daily life, how you live from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, all of that in the warp and woof of life is significant to God. And that is the implication here that God cares about the details. God cares about the details of how we live, even the use of money. Second, he says, don't walk as the Gentiles do. Now, here's what you got to understand when he says, as the Gentiles, you got to think, what do they mean? I mean, the Ephesians themselves were Gentiles, weren't they? And most of us here are actually Gentiles, meaning we don't have a Jewish background to our to our ethnic backgrounds. What he's really saying here is when you don't walk as the Gentiles do, you don't walk as pagans do. Pre-transformed, pre-converted people who are non-Christians. That's what he's alluding to. And he gives this painfully clear list of what the life of a Gentile or a pagan looks like even relative uh, to their lives. I mean, he goes on to say, don't walk in the futility of your mind or even be darkened in understanding, having ignorance that's in them. It's all language of the mind, of, of the way we think. In other words, he's saying, don't walk like them. They don't get it. They don't get what God's real larger plan is and how he's redeemed us to a new kind of life. They don't get... That money is not an end game in the way we live. It's not what we live for. It is a tool, a created tool. It's not a God, but they don't get that. And then he goes on to say that they are callous, hardened of heart. That's the language of numb. They're emotionally numb, insensitive. They have given themselves as a result to sensuality and greed. In other words, in their numbness, they so want to feel that they indulge in all kinds of things, reacting to whatever feels right and trying to get more and more of it, even impulsively. In other words, they never have enough. That's the nature of sensuality. You know, when you act on impulse of what feels good you end up being so numb, you just have to have more and more of what feels good. And worst of all, he has this little note of how they're alienated from God. In other words, there's no meaningful connection. They are separated. There's a broken relationship. 
they are even at odds with God and what he wants. I mean, clearly, Paul's painting a really dark picture of what the life of the pagan unbeliever is like. And you've got to ask, what's that got to do with us? Well, Paul is painting this picture to the Ephesians who were Christians, and he's painting a picture of what the old man looks like, the pre-converted man, the spiritually disconnected and lost person. And this shows up in the use of money. This shows up in how we live our lives with money. The dark life of lostness looks like this. Debt coming out of our ears. A life of constant acquisition. What else am I going to get? A life of accumulation. I don't have enough. I need to get more. I don't have as much as the Joneses have in this case. It's kind of like um, that TV show, The Hoarders. Have you ever seen that on TV? I mean, it's just kind of, we all laugh and just say, wow, can people do that? But here's the thing, as they hoard, what's really going on is a spiritual condition in their hearts. They hold on to these things as if their life depended on it. You know, you ask them, hey, can I take this little toy you haven't touched in five years? And they go, mm, no, don't take that. It has too many memories to it. They hold on to it as if life depended on it. That's what greed, that's what bondage looks like. But this life really is not one that he wants them to live. He's showing really what sin can do to you. And I'll just say it this way, what money used improperly can do to you and to our hearts. When I was a teenager, I had a youth leader who grew up on the mission field in South America. One day he brought some food from South America so we could eat it. And that included all kinds of funky stuff. And um, one thing was this kind of tough little piece of meat um, that had a tangy flavor to it. And he said, I want you guys to eat this. And so we all grabbed a piece and you know, it was kind of like beef jerky. You yanked it and you chewed on a little while. And, ate it. and then he said, OK, you know what that was? And we say, um, no. And he said, that was monkey meat. And we were like, oh my gosh. And so how do you catch a monkey? And the guy said, well, this is how you do it. This is how you catch a monkey. Uh, if the people among the tribesmen, they eat monkey because they need to eat. And that's kind of one of their forms of meat. So what they'll do is they'll take a coconut or a gourd. They'll hollow it out. They'll make a little hole in it. Just enough for a monkey to get his hand in. And then... They take that gourd and they uh, secure it to the ground with a rope, with a chain if they can get a hold of one. And then inside, down in the coconut or gourd, they'll put a smell, a really lovely aromatic piece of candy. Sticky. It just smells really good. And they put it out in the jungle. They wait. Pretty soon a monkey smells it comes. He puts his hand down there. He grabs that candy. And you know what he does? He tries to pull his hand out with a fist, a closed fist, but he can't get his hand out. And you know what they do in South America? A guy will come out of the woods with a club in his hand and this monkey sees him coming and is freaking out, but he won't let go of the candy. And the guy will come right over to him with that club and literally beat him to death. The whole time the monkey's holding it in his hand like his life depended on it. And the reality is, 
He died with it in his hand and he never got to really enjoy it. That is a word picture for how we live in this age is we hang on to things, created good things, sometimes with such ferocity, with even our greatest hopes in mind, that if we the thought of losing it is just too much. This is a word picture of what Paul is talking about in these first verses. When you're in a dark place with money, you're holding with a you're holding money with a closed fist. That's the word picture he's giving us. So money in this case turns into an idol, an idol that leads to death. Paul, however, in our text does a little turn, though, on us after painting this kind of hard picture of what it looks like. He then says uh, he then says an interesting thing to us in verses 20 and 21. He says, but I love that adversative in Scripture. Oh, here's the dark stuff. But. There's a change, a switch, a turn, if you will, that goes with God. He says, but that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth, as in Jesus. Oh, I love that adversative. It's the radical sense of, but things have changed. Things have changed for you. And here's what he says. Apparently, the Ephesians had heard of Christ and what he had taught. They had been taught in the gospel about him. Thus, they were different in the sense of how they knew Jesus and knew what he taught. But you know the phrase I really love in this? Look at this. It says, that is not the way you learned Christ. He doesn't say that is not the way you learned about Christ like a fact. It's learning Christ in a personal, living way. That's what he's talking about. And the implication is, when we follow Jesus by faith and we're connected to him by faith, we learn from him in a personal, real way as he's revealed in the word of God and scripture to us. And Jesus had a distinct way of living. Jesus had a distinct way of handling money. In fact, I'd like to tell you how Jesus handled money. How did Jesus utilize money? Well, we need to remember that um, though Jesus is the Son of God and owns everything, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, He was born into a lower middle class family in the first century in Judea. In other words, His kinfolk lived in mobile homes of that day. As an adult, after he likely worked as a carpenter for a while, he lived a very simple life as a traveling preacher. He never owned a home. Never. Remember, he said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that we can't own houses. I'm not saying that we can't enjoy earthly blessings like houses, cars, and whatnot. But what I am saying is we need to pay attention to how Jesus didn't take earthly riches and a standard of living as if it was everything. As Colossians 3, he says he set his mind on things above, not on the things of earth. And because of that, Jesus lived a life that promoted generosity, and he, he was generous in his whole life. He gave himself away. Not just resources, but himself. He gave resources in anonymity. 
You ever notice that? Jesus is regularly telling people after he heals them with his power and loves them deeply, don't tell anybody. They call it the messianic secret in scholarship, but he's doing that because of anonymity. For him, giving is not a show. Jesus also used resources as a tool to care for people's needs. He provided the loaves and fishes for the crowds. You remember that? Feeding the 5,000. They did that supernaturally. And even with natural means, that is resources like money collected by the disciples, they would give to the financially strapped, that is the poor. Jesus told his disciples to do this radical thing that we Americans still struggle with, and that is pay your taxes. And presumably he told them that because Jesus himself paid his taxes. Jesus also taught a lot about money. He said a lot. In fact, he said so much, it is a significant percentage of what he actually taught in his ministry. He warned about greed and the idol of money. Remember, he said, don't serve God and mammon. Do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. In other words, God through Christ says, I will take care of you. In fact, the rest of that passage in Matthew 6, when Jesus talks, he says, look, I don't even want you to worry about your basic needs in life. Yeah, like food and water and clothing and and shelter and a home. Don't even worry about that. Why would he say that? Because he wants us to focus on him. Jesus not only talked about these things, but yeah, he even affirmed tithing. In Matthew 23, Jesus said you should tithe. But he did this in a key way. He was speaking to the Pharisees who were all about tithing, 10%, but doing it so they could look good. And he says, look, give but with mercy and love. It matters what attitude of the heart you give in your giving. It's not mere legalism of doing the deed. Jesus praised sacrifice. Jesus praised generosity. The widow who who gave her, her last pennies. The woman who poured alabaster on him. Jesus praised them for their lavish generosity to God. And Jesus affirmed giving up all to gain everything. To gain the kingdom even. Remember the parable? Jesus talks about a parable. A guy who finds this wonderful treasure in a field and he sells all he has and he goes and buys the field so he can gain the treasure. The same analogy is for our lives. We give up everything to gain Christ as our ultimate treasure. And as the greatest gift of all, this giving Christ, Jesus died on the cross so so our sins in stewardship could be forgiven. All of this is given to us as a brand new start with money. He became poor that we might become rich and have that brand new start. So here's what Paul is saying. Look, study Christ. In the way you live your life, follow him in the way you utilize money. Jesus' way is not the way of the closed fist. It's the way of the open hand. You know, in an open hand, you can both receive and give. 
It's an open relationship. This is not open. And so what Jesus is really talking about and what the open hand is really all about is what we call giving love. The love of God. The open hand of giving love gives to God and to people without a hook, without condition. That's a different way of doing it because we live in a world, a business culture, even in America, where it's like, okay, I'll give you, but it'll come back around to me. Whereas real Christianity says, I give to you for your good. That's the way God has loved us. You know, the people who have impacted me the most in my life are the people who gave with the open hand. The people who said, here, here's the gospel, Dean. Dean, here is a gift that I just want to give you. Enjoy. Here is something that you could not manufacture on your own, but I will help you with it. Those are the ones that make the biggest impact on a life. And they will for you too as you've encountered Christ in His church. So what does giving love look like? How do we do this giving love that we study and look and, and see in Jesus? Because i got to tell you, it does not come naturally. Not at all. How do we go there and give the way Jesus did? Well, Paul lays it out in three steps. Three steps of a major change of wardrobe. <laughs> look with me at verse 22. In verse 21, Paul says, Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Wow, there's a lot there. But we have limited time. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on the three steps of a major wardrobe change as you follow Jesus. And here are the steps. And this is what it looks like. Put off the old. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new. There it is. There are the three steps. The three direct steps. This, by the way, is the rhythm of faith and repentance. Of repentance and faith. And Paul is using the language of clothing to put off and put on. Just like you would put off something that you don't want to wear today. Like, for example, the old man was a certain way, with a certain kind of look and feel to him and how he handled life. This was the old man. He would wear a certain coat. What Paul is saying is you need to take off that old man of the flesh that old man, the ungenerated way, unregenerated ways. And you need to put on the new man. A new way of living. A totally new way where you're following Jesus, you're studying Him, and you're learning from Him how to handle even money. Notice the excellent Wingate University saving here. There you go, guys. Put it on as the new way of life. This is the language of clothing He's using. And in fact, the rest of the New Testament, Paul talks about putting on and putting off, and he especially talks about putting on Christ in Romans. We are to follow Christ in His way of having money, not our own way. And you know, the way of a fool seems right to him, even with money. But a wise man listens. Listens to what God says in the way he handles money. Now, a lot of you are thinking, well, at this point, Dina, I understand to put off the old, put on the new. I've heard that before. But you know what? It's really hard. It's really hard. And I can say, yep, 
I understand it's really hard because you're really shifting the way you live your life. For example, go to the next one. Here it is. The old way of life thought like this. It thought in ownership. Ownership says, I own what I have in life. But when you become a Christian, you have to have a new way of thinking, which is stewardship. Like, all I have is Jesus's. That's a big shift. Everything is Jesus's? Yep. Everything. It also talks about, in the old way, endless acquisition. I've got to get more. I just got to buy another thing. There's just something therapeutic about buying. They opened a Gander Mountain store in Monroe. For guys who like to shoot guns, that's our crack, man. The other side is the new way, which is giving. The old way is accumulation. Just get more and more. The new way is caring for needs of others. The old way is hoarding. The new way is generosity. The old way is indulgence. The new way is sacrifice. The old way is stealing. The new way is sharing. That is a major shift in how you handle money. And let me tell you, if I tell you now, go live this way, this new way starting today, you haven't got a prayer in doing it on your own. Right? You really think you can go out and live that way, huh? <laughs> no, no, you can't. You see, there's one missing step that we haven't considered in what Paul was laying out. And it shows up in our text when he says, and this is often a forgotten step, I might add. He says in verse 22, uh, oh, excuse me, 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To be renewed or transformed in how you think about life, how you see life, how you react to life when it comes at you. You want to know how you're supposed to live? Even with money? You ready for this? Remember what we talked about last week. If you have died to sin and been resurrected in the power of the Spirit so you're a new creation, you have new life, here's the way you're supposed to live. When you wake up in the morning, you think, I'm dead. I have all accumulated all these things in my life, but I died. And I left it all behind. And when I die, I go to heaven. And when I'm in heaven, there I meet my Christ face to face. And he has a mansion beyond my wildest dreams. You think the ones out at Wells Fargo at Quail Hollow Country Club are nice? You ain't seen nothing yet. And that same Jesus walks me through the streets of heaven. Golden streets. And says, you see that piece of land over there? That's your inheritance. Oh, that's the state of Ohio. That's going to be yours. And he says, and you have incredible spiritual blessings available to you now in heaven. Even you have riches that await you that are beyond your wildest dreams. I think your estimated worth in heaven is like three trillion dollars. Isn't that like the American budget? And while you're living with this, I'm dead and I'm in heaven with Jesus. You start to think, wow, look at what's coming. Oi, <laughs> this is awesome. And then 
Jesus says, now it's time for you to go back. You're resurrected. Living in this world. And what you do is you live like you've got an unbelievable inheritance coming. And suddenly that changes everything. Now you don't need to live a life of, of ownership. I mean, let's, let's consider how we can share with people. Now you don't have to feel like you own everything or like you have to hoard it. It's about giving it away. Sharing your life. That's our number one problem with why we grip so hard onto the things of this world is we don't believe we have an inheritance coming. An inheritance worth mm, $4 trillion. That's probably a low estimate. <laughs> Jesus calls us to think this way in how we live. And the result is extraordinary generosity. It becomes a life of true stewardship. Don't you see when you put off the old and you renew your mind with a gospel and when you put on the new, it, you're free to love with giving love. There it is. Giving love even with financial resources. So what's the application? Well, I only have a few minutes, so I've got to be quick. In verse 25, Paul reminds us this, that... Uh, each one of you should speak the truth with his neighbor. And then he says this, for we are members of one another. If you call yourself a Christian, you're connected to a community of people. We're all connected to each other. And I'm going to say this, and this is going to make you nervous as an American, but here it is. We're all connected financially to each other as family. Woo I know that makes you nervous. You mad at me yet? Well, I'm not done. What that means is when you make financial decisions that affect your church, it affects other people in meaningful ways. Paul, well, he goes to meddling in verse 28. Look at this. He says in verse 28, um, he says, the thief, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Is he saying that Christians were actually stealing from each other? Maybe but I think there's a larger hint here. It's not just actual theft in, in the sense that I'm taking somebody's pro private property. He's, what he's saying is this. He's exhorting them to consider how they're affecting each other and how they're handling their finances. The opposite of stealing is work. And why do we work? Well, that's a good question. Why do you work? How about to make a living and feed your family? Absolutely. High value scripture. Absolutely. To bring glory to God in your creativity and your service? Absolutely. You can bring glory to God in what you do. To gain personal satisfaction and, and make an impact in the world? Oh yeah. Definitely. What does the text say though? Another purpose is. It says the purpose of your work is so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You, you get it? When you're part of God's kingdom, when you go to work each day, you're working not just for your family, you're working for all the other brothers and sisters in Christ in the kingdom. This is not communism. This is the kingdom of God. You're working for others to make an impact for Christ. 
Paul is making it abundantly clear you don't work for yourself or even your family. You work for the kingdom, which includes your family and yourself, but also others in need. So that brings us to the larger question. What does it look like to give to those in need? Well, you got the poor in the church. That's what we do at Redeemer in our mercy ministries and car care is care for the poor. Missionaries are people in need in the Scriptures. They are the ones who preach the Gospel in places where people can't afford to pay them to preach the Gospel. We pay for them to go and preach the Gospel. That's what faith promises for. Clearly, the children of the church can't take care of their needs. We have to do some things for them so they can hear the Gospel and be encouraged. Pastors and staff like yours truly who serve the church in a focused way, preaching and teaching the gospel and overseeing important things also in 1 Timothy 5 are cared for in their needs. And yes, clearly in Scripture we are to give to things like the infrastructure of the church, that is buildings. Now, admittedly, First century Christians met in house churches. They were so oppressed and persecuted that they met in small enclaves throughout cities. But as that persecution uh, waned and, and waxed over time, so the people of God would actually start to buy big houses. They would expand on the big houses. They would build sections of the house that were called assembly halls where all the congregation could gather. This is as early as the second century. They put their resources into this. And you know what they also did? They found in architecture when they'd unearthed these things, these buildings, that there would be these little rooms on the side of these, um, of these facilities that these churches were building. You know what those were for? The kids. That's where they would teach them how to read and write. How to read the Scriptures. It's where they would catechize them and teach them the truths of the Christian faith. As early as the second century, they've got children's ministry. Here's the big question. With all that I've just named of what the needs of the church are, you've got to ask, how in the world is anybody going to pay for that? How are, how are we going to pay for things like that? And here's the answer. It comes from Malachi 3, where he says, don't steal, tithe. Give 10% of what you have to the Lord. Let me be clear, college students, most of you aren't, re aren't working right now. What's 10% of zero? Well, zero. You don't have to give if you don't make any money. But you take 10%, not 2%, and you give it to the Lord and His kingdom. That's what you do. That's the first key thing. Now, some of you are going to say, wait a second, Dean. To go to 10% giving with my lifestyle and I'm just living on the edge right now is too much. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. Two ways you can go with this. First is this, uh, work a little bit of time over the next few years working your way up to a tithe. If you're like at 1% giving, work your way up a little bit more each time over the next few years so that you watch your budget. Give to the Lord first. The first fruits of what you have. Don't give to yourself. Don't even pay your bills first. You give to the Lord first. That's what the Scripture says. Second, you can do what my dad did. We, when I was in high school, not a few years from going to college, we became Christians. My brother was in college at the time. And my dad had to come to grips with the tithing thing. I'll never forget it. 
he starts wrestling through it and talking about it, even praying about it. I find him praying on, on, in the mornings about that particular thing. And you know what he came grips with? In a working class family where there's not a lot of money, he was going to step out in faith and start giving. And we started tithing. He started tithing as a, as, as a, a leader of our family. And you know what? He was never happier than giving. He left that legacy for me and for my family. It took me a while to learn it because I wanted to live my lifestyle and have my nice car. But I finally got it. And when you're giving, you're actually choosing the Lord over your money. That's the exercise of tithing. Forgiving to Redeemer, not only is there tithing to the general fund, but there's also offerings to the things like the building fund. I'll have you know that right now, banks are looking at our church. That's right, looking at us. Looking at us about, are they going to loan us sufficient funds so we can build a building? You know what they're looking at? They're not looking at the building fund. Even though, I want to encourage you guys, keep giving and thank you for giving. (laughs) They're looking at the general giving. And here's my challenge for Redeemer. I want you guys to start praying. If you're not already tithing, can you get to a level of tithing significantly in the next six months to a year? Can you work your way there so that when banks see that we can sustain a mortgage payment, we can actually do it? Second thing, for those who are already tithing and giving offering and you are working hard and you're making ends meet and God's providing, thank you. Thank you. Your generosity helps this church go places. It helps me to raise my family. It helps us do mission. It helps us to preach the gospel. Thank you. Final thought on all this of how we're going to do this is you've got to realize this doesn't happen with one or two people. This whole text is about y'all. All these imperatives in Ephesians 4 are y'all. Or in the, in the South, we say all y'all. We gather this money collectively. We can do things that we'd be free, that we'd be free to do things that we didn't think were possible because the riches are coming in by God's grace working through you. And you know, it is scary to do this. This past year, my daughter started in college. Yeah, for those of you who had kids through college, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you not there yet, it's expensive. And it's expensive when your wife is working full-time, you're working full-time, you guys are working yourselves to the bone, and you're thinking, how are we going to make all our ends meet? And oh yeah, how are we going to tithe? And I'm supposed to lead in that way. But we kept tithing, and boy, it was tight, man. I was like managing money and trying to figure it out. I was praying, I was struggling. You know what happened as we kept tithing? Several months into us actually sending Bethany off to college, here's what happened. I got a call from our mortgage company, and they wanted to target us for the special mortgage thing. It's a big mortgage company. It's a good mortgage company. And they offered us this ridiculously low rate of 2.75% over 15 years. And I say, What? That's almost half of what we were paying before. We took it. 
And we had space in our budget all of a sudden. And then, just two months ago, my daughter applies for another scholarship at NC State. I'm very proud of her. She got the second biggest scholarship you could get at North Carolina State University at Fine Institution of Learning. God blessed us. That did not come through magic. That is God working so we could be freed up to love and give. God is calling you to die and be resurrected, to put off the old, be renewed in your mind, and put on the new in how you handle money. And you know what? When you trust God with that kind of stuff, God will do funny things with your money. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you have given us to us so generously. And we're talking about a sensitive subject that's really scary for a lot of us. But I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Lead us, O Lord, as a body together that we might collectively put together resources to to advance your kingdom in ministry. Maybe in your grace to build a building. And in time, Lord, we'll look back and give you glory. Because that's the point of it all. You are the one who's given. You are the one who provides. And yes, sometimes takes away. But in all times, we trust you. Because there is no God like you. In Christ alone we pray. Amen.